We'll be reading uh, three select verses in the uh, book of Mark, chapter 4. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, stand for the reading of the word, please, we'll, shortly. Mark chapter seven or chapter four, verse seven. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And verses eighteen and nineteen. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and becomes unfruitful. You may be seated. Father, we come to you this morning with the word open. Father, we ask that you give us ears to hear. Thank you, Lord, for your church. Pray, Father, this morning as we look to your word, that each one of us would be attentive to hear your word, that we would ask of you what you would desire of us as it pertains to your word. Father, I pray that we would hear, and Father, that we would be doers of this word, that you would Have us walk, Lord, in the way that your word calls for. We would see what your word says, that together we would walk in this way. Father, I pray your spirit would teach us this morning. Your spirit would move us. Move us, Lord, to where you would desire us to be. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Dwayne, for reading the verses this morning. Some of you probably realized those verses are not from Acts 16, where we've been. Uh, Lord willing, we'll return to Acts 16 next week. What I'd like to do this morning from the Word is to initially call the The family together. You know, I was thinking about in the course of leading in the home, sometimes there needs to be um, family meetings. Sometimes call family members together when there's something important that needs to be addressed. And may not be news that everyone in the household desires to hear. But as the leader in the home, you, you know that these are things that need to be spoken. And because they're part of the family, they all need to hear the message. And so the Lord at times orchestrates it in such a way as many of you know, we here at Hope in Christ, we typically are working through a book of Scripture And there are times when the Lord would have his church depart, I believe, from the pattern of expositing through a text for a particular purpose. And today happens to be one of those departures. We'll get back, Lord willing, to Acts next week. But today, 
would like to just gather the, the family of God here at Hope in Christ to um, what I believe is a, is a much needed word. Not my opinion, but a word from the scripture. Relevant to where we are, I believe, as a local body of believers. So I think it's fair to say that this is a word intended for those who call hope in Christ home. You might be a guest with us this morning. Praise the Lord you're here. Praise the Lord you're here. Glad you're here. But I would want to be sure to clarify that this is um, a word that's going out to those who call hope in Christ their home church. You know, this church began, it'll be seven years ago now, December. And if you were here, how many of you were here those first days? There were just a couple families, yeah. Yeah, just a couple families. Um, you might recall the excitement at the beginning. As I was thinking back on that to the best of my ability, I, I also was now drawn to ask the question, what was the excitement rooted in? On what basis did the families at Hope in Christ come together? Was there, was there a longing in the heart to worship the Lord together or was there coming together more of um, a fleeing of another church or an escape of another church experience? Was there a rallying around the banner of Jesus Christ or the fact that most, if not all, happen to be home-educated families? The church, this probably comes as no surprise, but the church of Jesus Christ is under attack at large and locally. Here, it's under attack. The evil one is doing a masterful job at deceiving the hearts of men and women, young and old alike. And like the church at Ephesus, the, the church at Hope in Christ has some good qualities. I hope you hear this morning not just things perhaps that we need to have course correction on. Hope in Christ Church has some very good qualities. And those were pointed out by Christ himself as he's speaking those words in Revelation chapter 2. But also like the church at Ephesus, I wonder if we too have lost sight of our first love. Like the church at Laodicea. I wonder if we've become lukewarm. A lukewarm church is enough to make the Lord vomit. It makes him sick, and rightly so. Christ died for the church. Lukewarm living has no place in the life of his church. And we said this before, it needs to be said again. Lukewarm living is, is essentially like having one foot here declaring, yes, I'm with the Lord, and one foot over here basking in the riches of the world. Lukewarm is desiring the benefits that come along with participating in a church family and yet remaining on the fringe, not wanting to commit to doing church life together. 
The church is called to be hot for the Lord. Two feet in kind of followers. This is not an option. You know, if you're looking for a place simply to attend a Sunday morning church service, I don't know that hope in Christ is the place for you. There's a lot of church buildings. And some of you, as you travel here on a Sunday morning, you pass a lot of church buildings. Some of them are much closer to your home. There are many services that abound on a Sunday morning. Why are you here at Hope in Christ? I think that's a good question to ask. Why are you here? Are you here primarily because of the families around you that home educate? I, I want us to, to listen and to know that the church, according to the scripture, the church has one foundation on which she's built. That foundation, according to Corinthians 3.11, is Jesus Christ. You know, we sing the song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. However sweet that frame may be, I dare not trust him. You know what? There are a lot of frames today, sweet frames. And I think you're finding out we can't trust. The Bible says not to put our trust in princes, in man. But wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground. So why are you here? Entering here this morning. Entering in with thanksgiving in your hearts. Did you arrive to participate in worship this morning? Or to occupy a chair. See the Lord didn't call his church. And for some of you these are words that you've heard before. These are not surprising words. These are perhaps not new words. But I believe words that that need to be spoken. He he didn't call his church to simply be a church attender. And, And I say that and as I say that some perhaps use that as leverage for why they might be gone again next Sunday. Please hear me and understand. I know some of you, when you're not here, there are legitimate reasons why you can't be here. The Lord knows that. The wrong question, though, to ask in this is, how many Sundays a month is it, to be, is it okay to be gone? We're not desiring, have no desire to go into legalistic waters. With what we're talking about this morning. If you're in Christ, you will desire to be a part of the gathering on a Sunday morning. If you're in Christ, you'll delight as the psalmist did and said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. The bottom line on that is you'll make every effort to be here when the saints meet together on a Sunday morning. And this church, I believe, is the segue into the text that I'd like to share that Dwayne read here this morning. So if you have your Bibles open, Mark chapter 4. Jesus is teaching by the sea. He's in a boat. He's teaching a parable to the great multitude gathered on the shore. He's teaching what 
many of you here have read and heard on multiple occasions, the account of the sower and the seed. And you know, the times I've heard this text preached, it usually covers the entirety of the text from Mark chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 20, pointing out the significance of the seed sown and highlighting then the significance of what that means as Jesus explains it to his disciples. This morning, I'm calling the family together to see one part of the text. I just want us to look at one part of the text. I only want to preach one part of the segment, this, this parable. Verse 7 is the beginning point. Some seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked it. And it yielded no crop. After Jesus finished teaching this parable, the disciples, you might remember, they gather around and they're inquiring, what would you, you really mean by what you just said there, Jesus? And it seems to be significant to the text because understanding this parable seems to be key for understanding the others. In verse 13, he says, how then will you understand all parables? And then he goes on, starting in verse 13, to explain the meaning of his teaching. The text then goes on to say that the thorns grew up in verse 7. The thorns grew up. You know, when left unattended, thorns and thistle, weeds, they tend to grow, don't they? They don't need fertilizer. They don't need extra attention. Don't have to water them. They just grow on their own. They do a nice job of it. Well, the seed that was originally sown in the thorny soil, maybe it didn't appear so bad at the first. Perhaps the seed was able to see the light of day after landing in this particular area. But over time, the seed described in verse 7 became overshadowed. It had no room to take root. Above ground, the thorns had grown. Below ground, the thorns no doubt were doing some work. The thorns grew up and they did what thorns typically do. They choked out everything around it. God has called his church to operate in obedience to his word. Stewarding her days, bearing fruit to him. But what happens when the church is operating apart from his word? What happens when the seed that gets sown lands on a heart that is infested with thorns? Church, the seed is the word. We see that that seed gets, he's sowing the word. The word is intended to be heard. It's intended to be received. It's intended to be welcomed. It's sown that we might bear fruit. Bearing fruit for God cannot happen apart from adherence to this word. I wanted to preach verse 7 and its counterpart in 18 and 19. I believe it addresses where we are in large part as a church. Now the words that are being put forth this morning, it's important to understand. This is going out to the family. You know, when we have a family, family message, a family talk... It's important that everybody hears it. 
I also understand that those who may be hearing it, it's very possible that your heart is not infested with thorns. Perhaps there are hearts here that are welcoming and receiving and bearing fruit. And if that's you, praise the Lord, keep on going. This is an important enough message, though it needs to be to all. I believe all of us, myself, I'm pointing to myself, all of us can learn a great deal from this. Of course, correction needs to be made within our hearts. That's what this parable is about, is our heart. And I'm afraid that for some time, the church, at some level, has, has pretended in regard to or desire to bear fruit. So if, if the word of God is being choked out, fruit bearing is not possible. Abiding in Christ and abiding in his word go hand in hand. Apart from Christ, what does Jesus say in John 15? Apart from me, apart from abiding in me, you can do nothing. So the question then comes to the surface. What is choking the word here at Hope in Christ? What is it that's keeping the word from bearing its intended fruit in your life? The three points to the message are not mine. They're right here in the text. Verse 18 and verse 19. These are the ones sown among thorns. As Jesus is describing seed sown in this area. They are the ones who hear the word. Notice they hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word. And it becomes unfruitful. So what is it that's keeping the word from bearing its intended fruit in the lives of God's flock? Let's look at this. Cares of this world. The word cares. On one hand, it, it, it has in mind distraction. We could also say that it is, um, a care would be to, to draw one in a different direction. All maybe varying different directions. We see also another end of care used in the scripture. And it's used by Paul in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, And this kind of care is to have a, a deep concern for something or someone. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, he says, talking to the church of Corinth, he says, besides other things, what comes upon me daily? He says, my deep concern for all the churches, my deep concern, my care, my longing for all the churches. And you know, as I was reading that passage, I was thinking about Paul's deep concern for all the churches that he's planted. And in many ways, this message is, is a deep concern that I have for this body. Care about this flock. And feel compelled to speak for the sake of the souls under our care. The cares of this world are choking the word of God in your life one way, according to this text. It's choking the word out. And I'd like to just share some basic cares that I think are being described here. And, and these are common cares to about everybody in here. 
cares that you wouldn't maybe identify as problem issues. We begin with marriage. Oh, but God ordained marriage. How can that be a care of this world? You're right, he did ordain marriage and it's a wonderful thing. Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's speaking about several different things there in that chapter. If I were to summarize the entirety of it though, I would look at verses 32 and 35. Paul says, I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. He who is married cares for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares, uh, cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And verse 35, and this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, he says, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. That's, that's really the key right there. Serving the Lord without distraction. Closely connected to marriage is family, an extension of that marriage. One of the definitions that we just shared about these cares to be drawn in different directions. You know, when children come, how easy it can be, right? To be caught up in the cares of this world, to spend your days consumed, consumed, with seeing to the affairs of your children. You can quickly be drawn in different directions, trying to cater to each one's needs. Or what about work? These are basic cares in the world. These are basic to about all of us here. And men, for some of you, your work is a distraction to the things of the Lord. Your work is distracting, but some of you like it. Your busyness is held up as a trophy for working hard. Problem is, you don't get a button from the Lord for the number of hours you log during your days here. Work is deemed good, just like marriage and family. Ordained by God. But in no way is it to be a distraction from walking in obedience to the word. In no way is it to be an excuse for why the word has no place in your life. Here's one that I believe would be a, a basic care to many of us. If you own a home, the maintenance of that home. The upkeep of that home. And the property that the home sits on. There's, there's always something to be done at home, isn't there? You always have lists. Things that need to be done. Things that need to be fixed. Things that need to be remodeled, repaired. Be careful that the maintenance of your home, the to-do lists, don't choke out the word of God. Then there are miscellaneous cares of the world. You know, the cares I've mentioned to this point are all pretty basic 
But, but the question goes forward, what cares get added that ought not be added? What distractions are there in your life? What different directions are you going? It's choking the word out. How many unnecessary cares are you piling up? Things that distract, things that pull you in different directions. You know, many of the things that I've mentioned are good things, necessary things at some level in our life. The cares of this life, though, ought not distract from pleasing the Lord. I mean, let's think about it for just a moment. God has gifted you, some of you, a wife. He's gifted you with a family. Gifted you with work, income. He's gifted you with a house or an apartment to live in. Did he give those things to you that you might then take your eyes off of him? Did he bring the two of you together as husband and wife that you might be distracted, drawn in different directions? He brings the woman to the man that the two of them together might glorify God. He blesses you with children not to fracture the family, but to bring each one under the banner of Christ in his church, to plant them, as the scripture says, in the courts of the Lord. A follower of Jesus follows Jesus. Isn't that a profound statement? A follower of Jesus follows Jesus. Luke describes him as one who denies self and takes up his cross daily and then follows. Seems to be a precursor to following Jesus. The question here, are, are we trying to follow Jesus and at the same time build a monument to the cares of this world? The cares of this world, according to what we just read here in Mark, the cares of this world can choke out the word. Your family, your marriage, your work, all good things from the Lord, if not stewarded for the Lord's purposes, can all contribute to a thorny heart situation. And when the word gets choked out by a thorny heart, you become unfruitful for the Lord. The text says that there's something else choking out the word in your life. That's but one. The cares of this world. He goes on and says the deceitfulness of riches. And we need to understand this about riches. The pursuit of riches is a temporary fleeting pursuit. Proverbs chapter 23, 4 and 5 says, Do not overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding, cease. Isn't that interesting? I, I always passed by that before, but that struck, struck me, uh, jumped out this week as I was reading it. Because of your own understanding, Cease. In other words, there, there seems to be, as, as the writer's writing the proverb, those who are listening to it would have understood. Because you have understanding, because you know these things, Steve, stop, stop doing this. Why? He says, will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Or what about the words from Paul to Timothy in chapter 6? Starting in verse 9, he said, But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Skipping down to verse 17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Did you see that descriptor? Uncertain riches. But to trust in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for when? For the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. As we think about this deceitfulness of riches, there's, there's also this myth. There's a myth that's circulating, and, and you've probably caught wind of it. It's the idea that money can buy you happiness. Money can buy you happiness. It's one of those thorns growing up around you, this deceitfulness of, of riches. And it's got some of you perhaps in its grip. Has maybe for some time now. The dollar bill is a necessity here. But it need not be, listen, it need not be on the throne in your life. There's one who ought to be on the throne and that's Christ. Deuteronomy 8, 18 says that God is the one who provides wealth. He's the one who provides income. He'll take care of what you need. Please don't be another example of what we read earlier of one who perished through greediness, one who pierces himself through with many sorrows. Money, too, is a gift from the Lord. It, too, requires stewardship in this life. And this is another example of something the Lord has given and meant for good. And yet the heart, you know, as you think about the heart, Jeremiah says the heart is what? Deceitful. Twists and turns and rationalizes this dollar bill. And if not careful, heart can cater to it, bow down to it, compromise just to get it. The deceitfulness of riches, it grows over time. You begin to envision what you can do with a pile of riches. And you begin to think about where you can go, where you can eat, the places that you might travel. The dreams that you can fulfill. If you just only had the money. There's also this Deceitfulness of riches comes in serving in some ways as a drug to, to soothe. This buying as a means to feel better. Even if before time, right? It, it's it, this soothing your soul. It, it just, just, if I just buy this one thing, oh, it just makes me feel so much better. We use our money sometimes in this deceitfulness of our riches. We can use these things to make us feel better when the reality is what's missing. There's something gigantic missing inside and that is this vibrant relationship with the Lord, what's missing is the word of God has been choked out of our lives and we're looking for something to fill the gap. Just buy one more thing. Serve as your comfort. God didn't give us money 
to serve as our comfort. He gave us his spirit to be our comforter. He gave us his word to serve as a comfort and encouragement to our soul. He gave us Christ and the cross to serve as a comfort to our souls. Money will promise this will make you feel better. (laughs) This is going to make you happy. But don't listen to the voice. Because buying another whatever, you can fill in the blank. Buying another whatever, it won't cure your disobedience to God. It won't cure your hard heart. It won't cure your bitterness that's, that's rooted in your heart. So what needs to happen? Well, we begin, I believe, in many of these areas, we begin with repentance. We repent. We confess our sins. We turn to God. We ask Him to come, renovate, try us, search us, if there's any wicked way in us. There's also, along with this deceitfulness of riches, this bigger barn mentality. You see it in the scriptures, and Jesus is talking to the man, the rich man who thought it a good idea to tear down his old barns and build some bigger ones. And I believe it's a case study, too, of a heart condition. Got to have it in order to kind of just rest and take it easy down the road. Jesus, remember what he deems? He deems that person a what? A fool. A fool. Get your eyes off the barns and set them on Christ. We live in a culture of entitlement. The deceitfulness of riches would lead you to believe that you are entitled to a few things in this life. A nicer car, a nicer home, nicer job, nicer set of clothes. The deceitfulness of riches dangles what can be yours right before your eyes. And after a while, you start to buy in and believe that you can. And in fact, should have all these things as well. Your pursuit of entitlement can get you entangled. You need to know that it has a choking effect in your life. Closely connected to the entitlement is the phrase, many of you have heard of it, the idea of keeping up with the Joneses, the neighbors, the comparison. The neighbor next door installs a new deck. We better get a new deck. Neighbor down the road paints the house. Oh, we better get the house painted. And whether it's a neighbor or whether it's someone else that you know, this comparison starts to set in. We got to have it because someone else has it. And you know, as I was thinking about that, it caused me to ask the question, how do you know, church? How do you know what needs to be done and prioritized in this life? How do you know? Doesn't the word Shine light for your path. That's what it says it does, right? Psalm 119. When you're always comparing yourselves to others and you're gauging your decision making on what others do and not the word. See, this deceitfulness of riches, it can, it can trip you up. It can take your eyes off of Jesus. It can choke the word out of your life. I want you to notice that the text says the deceitfulness of riches. Riches in themselves don't choke the word out, but it's the deceitfulness of riches. It's the lie that makes riches out to be something more 
than they are intended. Remember he said in the proverb, because of your own understanding of God and his word, cease. Stop chomping on the bait. (laughs) The word would have you channel your riches in heavenly pursuits and things that are going to last. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures, where? On earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, church, there your heart will be also. Church, where's your treasure invested? Academia? Sports? House you live in? Vacation? Retirement? I think a helpful exercise is to open your checkbook and look at your calendar. See how you use your money and how you spend your time. Begin to identify where your treasure is. Your heart is where your treasure is. Is Christ that buried treasure in the field? Or is he not? You remember that parable? The man found the treasure in the field and he put it back and he went back and he sold everything he had to get the treasure. Or buying that pearl of great price. He's worth it all. Well, Mark chapter 4 In addition to the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, there are the desires for other things entering in. This word desires has in mind cravings and longings and lusts, desire for things that really ought not be desiring. It's the same word that is used in James 1.14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. As we think about these desires for other things entering in. I was reminded of the importance of one needful thing in our life. One needful thing. The, the important thing. What is the important thing in our life? And you know, there was a, um, a story told about a, a camera crew that, that visited. And really, the application, we, we could just draw the application and put it to ourselves. So let's imagine tomorrow morning camera crew shows up to your house and the camera crew comes into your home and they are for two straight weeks following you around everywhere you go zooming in on you they're watching you and at the end of the two weeks they show this video to a group of strangers and the question goes out to the group of strangers that are watching the video tell me what the most important thing is in this person's life. And so they watch the video. You know, as you get to thinking about that, you get to thinking about if someone were to watch you just for two weeks, what would they come away with? What would they notice is the one needful thing that has to happen in your life every day?
I think maybe a question more important to ask is, what does the Lord think about your day? Is this word in obedience to this word a non-negotiable in your life or an option when you get around to it? Is his church an absolute in your life? Or is it just a good idea when the calendar is cleared up on a Sunday? What does the Lord think about how you're stewarding your days? Are your desires his desires? And if not, repentance is in order for all of us. Because that's the goal. That's the objective. Our desires would be his. One needful thing. What is it in your life? As we think about these desires for other things, sometimes, church, sometimes we just don't know how to say no to things. You know, getting the family together to have this kind of talk this morning, I think it may be helpful just to practice it. Can we say no? Let's practice that together. No. You can practice it. Go ahead. Let's practice it. No. Some of us need to say no to some things. We don't say no to some things. And when we don't say no to things, what happens? Things start to pile up. We start to pile up. And when things start to pile up, guess where this ends up? At the bottom of the pile, oftentimes. These desires for other things coming in, we've got to make sure. We've we got to make sure we're clear. And this is all, all the reason we talked about it initially, that we understand what, what is the needful thing? What's the one needful thing? How's my life to be lived? For whom am I living? These desires for other things also enter in when we think we can do this life on our own. A spirit of independence cultivates a sense that I can do this. Problem is, here's the problem with that. He never intended for you to operate solo. The full armor, Ephesians 6, right? The full armor is needed due to the nature of the battle that we find ourselves in here on earth. This might explain, in part, why the church is not what she should be. The call is to put on the full armor. It's his armor. He's given us the armor. Praise God. He's provided everything we need to stand in the battle. And yet, we get picked off time and time again. Because we forget whose we are. That helmet of salvation isn't even on our radar. We don't remember that in the course of our day. God saved me. And so I go about and I make my decisions and I do these things without a realization of how he's cleansed me from my sin. We see no need for the shield to guard us. That shield of faith. What's that shield of faith for? To guard against what? Any young men know that? What do we have that shield of faith for? Anybody? What's it for? Shield of faith. What, what do we hold it up for? Anybody know? Go ahead. Somebody tell me. Darts of the evil one. That's right. Yeah. Flaming darts. Yeah. 
And we don't have that shield of faith up. We're an easy target. Perhaps we think little or none of how to even engage the enemy. Church, do you realize that God in his mercy has given to us his word? The sword of the spirit is the word. And when the, word, when the word's being choked out, you have no weapon against the evil one. You have none. Think about it. When, when you desire something you ought not desire, you're, you're choking out the word. And when the church as a whole, when the church as a whole desires something other than Christ... And what Christ would have, his desires. She chokes out the word. And then you have the vulnerable church. You have a church easily accessible by the evil one. A church where the walls are down. A church where the flock, one by one, can get picked off. You know, a while back, I I, I was... I remember watching the video of a shepherd. A real shepherd with his flock and there was one that was sickly and weak and it was straggling behind and there was a wolf have any idea which one the wolf attacked which one the wolf got the straggler the one left behind easily picked off it can easily happen We must not, by our own foolishness, allow ourselves to be picked off in this manner. The Lord has given to us his word. He's given to us his armor to put on. He's given to us all of these things. And yet we pursue time and again these other desires. A church that has choked out the word of God essentially has forfeited her only weapon in the battle. Think about that for a moment. How many of you would enter willingly into a battle and just say, I don't need these weapons? Would any of you do that? I don't think so. But yet, we seem to be okay with this up on the shelf and put away on many occasions. There's also this Technology trap. These desires for other things entering in. Your desires to stay on the cutting edge. You heard that term, right? May be holding you hostage to producing fruit in your life as a follower of Jesus. Is this new gadget necessary? Is it going to lead you down another rabbit trail away from the Lord, away from His Word? Is it going to drain your time? Is it going to drain your treasures? Is it going to set an example for those in your household watching you what it means to follow Jesus with a whole heart? Some of you here desire your technology gadget more than you do the Word of God. You crave and you long to look at it. Adults and young people alike. The smartphones aren't as smart as what they're made out to be.
Not when they're drawing you away from the Lord, the things of the Lord. There's some of you here who can't go 15 minutes without having your nose in that phone. I spoke to a group of campers a few weeks ago. I was with the boys, had the opportunity, the Lord gave me an opportunity to speak to a group of about 200 campers. And I addressed technology. I was talking, my theme was authenticity as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. In the midst of the conversation to the campers, the coaches were also there. The coaches are all college young men. And I had a specific word for the college young men who were there. Throughout the week, the Lord had allowed me to observe some habits. Whenever these guys had free moment, they were checking their sports scores. They were checking the news. They were playing frivolous video games. They were texting. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Has your smartphone got you? Your laptop, tablet, whatever gadget that may be. See, the gadget itself isn't always the issue. It's what you can access through the gadget. Are you craving and longing for something on your gadget that you know is not pleasing to the Lord? These kinds of desires choke out the word of God in your life, church. Closely connected to the technology trap is this call to entertain me. Entertain me. It caters to the flesh, church. We live in a culture that loves to be entertained. And you know, in our own home, we have to say, we have to say no. We say no a lot in our home to things that come our way. If you ask our children, they'll tell you that. We say no a lot. One reason has to do with this particular point. In our home, we call it, starts with an E and it ends with a T. Entertainment. The church is not an entertainment center. Is it your desire to be entertained when you come into the Lord's house? And you know, young people, I, I, I really, I really like to ask you this question in particular, because, and your parents aren't exempt from it, but the culture we live in, you are the heavy favorites, target of the entertainment industry. Many of your peers, those who profess to follow Jesus, maybe, maybe not. Many of them are swimming in the fast-paced current of entertainment. And their desires are oftentimes placed on the front burner. And just the mention of their latest entertainment venture stirs up ungodly desires. What appetites are you feeding, brothers and sisters? What desires are you saying yes to? Have you considered that those desires, if not godly and grounded in the word of truth... Have you considered their, their final destination? Have you considered, thought about the long-term trajectory of where this goes if I keep doing this? The harvest is coming in. Parents, your children are getting older. 
The return on your sowing is making itself known. There's a sowing and reaping principle found in the scripture. Not just for parents. It's also for children to understand that sowing and reaping principle. If you plant corn in the ground, Lord willing, after a period of time, you're going to get some corn. If you plant some tomato seeds in the ground, Lord willing, there's going to come a day, maybe it's already happening already for some of you, that you're starting to see some tomatoes. Children, just a a, a word to you on this. It's true that, that some of your parents have sown into your life for years. Trying to see that this word of God gets in you. Praise God. They care for your soul. They desire God's word to pierce your own heart that you might walk by faith with the Lord Jesus all your days. A large number of you children, some of you may not like the term children, young people, a large number of you need to take responsibility to tend to your own soul. You have heard the word of God, but you're so consumed in your own desires that the word of God has been choked out of your life. You have rendered it inoperative. You have. God and his word hasn't gone anywhere. Catering to your own desires, looking for the next entertainment opportunity. Have you noticed how many spend their days desiring to be entertained? We live in a video game world. Have you noticed how many adult kids there are today? There's a lot of them. The adults are supposed to be maturing in the faith, leading by example, growing in the word of God. And yet the desire for entertainment has captured even some of you here. Don't think that your children aren't watching you. Friends, do you have a desire for other things today? Is Christ not enough? Is this church not worth it? When a need arises in the body, are you quick to meet the need or do you let someone else do it? When there's a need to serve the Lord and the body on a Sunday morning and you know about it, you read the email that came and you saw that, that line. What's that line mean? I think many of you know what that line means. That line means there's no one signed up, prepared, ready to serve the Lord in this particular arena. Do you act on it? Or do you sit on it? Are you too busy to serve the Lord? Too busy for one another in the place here? Too busy to have anyone over to your home once a month? You know, Hospitality Sunday Is Hospitality Sunday an opportunity for you to get other brothers and sisters in your home and go visit other brothers and sisters in your home? Or is it a great excuse to just go home after the service? Do you desire to know the other sheep in this flock? 
Do you desire to be together, to interact, to do life together as God and his word has called us to do life together? It seems like a lot of desires competing with God's desires for his church. You know, if we're too busy to participate in Christ's church, and by the way, one writer this week, I came across another elder in Colorado. He had actually talked about this new idolatry that's around today. He called it new idolatry, which is, it's a church that's too busy for God. When the choice comes to fellowship on Sunday afternoon or, or go home and watch the football game, what wins out? When you can't go a Sunday afternoon without checking the score of the game, might there be an idol present in your life? Is there a heart problem? Hey, I'm, some of you may think, well, hey, I, these are real things. They need to be talked about because some of these things are choking out the word of God in your life and in the life of the church as a whole. Some of you here participate in what's called fantasy football. Those of you that don't know what it is, I'm glad you don't know what it is. Some of you do know what it is. Years ago, I participated in it. Years ago. Did football, did, did basketball, did baseball. And, you know, listen, it, it seems like a lot of fun. It appears innocent. But here's what it does. It draws your heart away from the things of the Lord. And like a vacuum, it just sucks all your time. It sucks all your energy leading up to the weekend. And so you end up looking forward to Sundays, not primarily because you're going to be gathering with the saints at Hope in Christ, but because your players are playing on Sunday. They play on Sunday and all you just can't wait to see how they do. Would the Lord have you live in a fantasy world, church? Is that what he's called us to be about? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things come in, entering in, they choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. I'm concerned the word has been sown on thorny hearts in this church body. Hearts that are more concerned about the cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in. Hearts that look a lot like the world. Hearts that, truth be told, are are bent toward pleasing self rather than pleasing the one that you proclaim to be Lord of your life. A heart of thorns, if not tended to, will eventually grow. And when it does, it chokes out the word of God in your life. What's the result of one's life in Christ where the word of God is choked out? The text says it becomes unfruitful. Question, is that a problem? God's word says it is. John 15, verse 8, Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear what? Much fruit. So you will be my disciples. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. So it pleases the father that you bear much fruit. 
Bearing fruit to God is evidence that you're following him. You follow him only insofar as you abide in this word. Abide in his word and you shall know the truth. Why is that so good and why is that so important? This truth found in his word will set you free to live as he's called you to live. Church, a heart of thorns never gets around to serving the Lord. A thorny heart always has something going on. Something always crowding out the church, the word of God, your own relationship with the Lord. And when the meeting with God's people is viewed as an obstacle to fulfilling your desires, you might have some thorns growing up. When your schedule never presents an opening to meet with others, check your heart. You might have some thorns growing out of control. This ought not be. For the Lord's sake, it ought not be. What then should be the pattern for the Lord's church? I think verse 20 of Mark 4 gives us that pattern and priority. These are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. Some 30-fold, some 60, some 100. My prayer is that God's word penetrates the soil of your heart in such a way that you accept it and bear fruit. You know, there was a young man who back in the day, a little shepherd boy, and he was sent on a mission by his father to go check in on his brothers. On this particular day, I'm sure David thought very little about this task of delivering some food to his brothers on the fighting line. But on this particular occasion, as he's going to deliver some food, he's there for a day or two, and he's hearing something. He's hearing this big giant of a man yell out these things about God's people. And David's taking inventory. What is it? Who is this guy? And what are all these other guys doing? You see, there came a time where David was stirred up about the situation. He had a heart for God, church. He had a heart to do something about this uncircumcised Philistine that kept coming out twice a day. He's looking around. He sees, all, he sees his brothers. He sees all these other soldiers. He sees Saul. Sign me up. I'll, I'll take care of him. Why? Because David thought he was mightier than the other guys? No. That's not what the Bible says. David understood this battle was the Lord's. He understood that God had put him in position. He, he was able to take care of a bear. He was able to take care of a lion as he's protecting his flock. And he went out. Remember Saul said, well, let me put some armor on you. He says, no, I can't do that. I, I can't do that. I just, he goes out. He runs to the battle line with his shepherd's bag, his staff, those stones, and most importantly, the spirit of God. His heart. His heart was in doing the things of the Lord. He was receptive to what God would wanted in his life. Are we thinking that at all? Are we looking at those things at all? When we find ourselves in situations, are we thinking what God would want here? It's important. You know, I think that it's important when we have a, a, a talk like this with family. That you don't just hear in order to apply what you hear to someone else here that you might know. 
The word's for all of us, myself included. No one's exempt from tending to his heart. The Bible says that we're to guard our heart. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart. You know, as an elder, I've been entrusted with guarding the flock. The flock needs to be guarded. In some ways, this is the sounding of a trumpet to, to uncover or reveal the thorny hearts in the place. Perhaps it'd be good to talk about these things in your own household this evening. I encourage you maybe even to ask some other brothers and sisters here what they're seeing in your life. And that can become a hard thing. Maybe it has been a hard thing for you. Maybe that's been a thought, but you've not done it. You've not moved on it. You're afraid to ask the question because you know what you might find out. What you might find out is that you're walking in darkness. Maybe you know you're walking in darkness. You don't want to be exposed to the light. Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ died that you might have life. His blood paid the price of the church. He laid down his life for his people. He gave you his life, church. It's abundant, it's full. John chapter 10 tells us the kind of life that he offers and affords. But if you continue hearing the word and turning to the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in, you'll choke out the word in your life and you'll become unfruitful for the Lord. Here's a question I'd like you to think about and consider. Is the Lord okay with his flock choking on his word? Is he okay with that? The good news is that God can turn a choking church into a living, vibrant, spirit-fueled church. This God of the Bible is a God of second chances, a God who offers forgiveness, a God who welcomes restoration and reconciliation, a God who is on the lookout, the Bible said, he's on the lookout for hearts loyal to him. Instead of a choking church, I pray that God would transform this body into a joy-filled, life-giving, Christ-exalting, disciple-making church. I'd like to just spend a few moments in prayer. felt like as, as the message was put together and that the segue from the message would be prayer time instead of Lord's Supper. So we're just going to go right into to prayer time. And we'll have the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of the prayer time. But I'd like you to consider and think through in this prayer time. As we have a, a prayer time, we typically have a corporate time together. But I'd like to ask you to go before God. Have him deal with you right where you are. In this particular prayer time, there's three aspects to it that I'd just like to share as we work through this together. 
The first one is confessing your sins to him. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 32, verses 3, 4, and 5 says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Then listen to what he says. I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. See if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Let's take a moment before the Lord. By the way, when we, when we talk about, and in just a moment we're going to talk about repentance. These are not optional things for the follower of Jesus Christ. Our lives are to be lived out as lives lived in repentance. Going to God. Confessing our sins. Agreeing with him that our sin is exactly what he thinks about sin. So let's take a moment. Read a few of those scriptures specific to confessing our sins. Let's just go before the Lord. And let's do that here. like for us to pray repent sins that we've committed against him maybe to ask the question what is it in your life that's choking out God's word from bearing fruit in your life to remember that the scripture says in Romans chapter 2 that his goodness his goodness leads you to repentance that's what leads you and drives you to repentance is His goodness. Psalm 51, 3 and 4. David says, I acknowledge, I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11. Paul is writing and says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. He says, observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. Oh, Father, I I pray that you would, as we take this time to pray and repent, Father, there would be a clearing away. Some of our lives have so much clutter. Godly repentance. There's this clearing that happens. 
And Father, your word goes on. It says what diligence it produced, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this manner. Father, I pray that as we come before you, the sins that we repent of, Lord, we understand and recognize from your word that sin is against you, you only. David equated our sin with evil. Father, we acknowledge that you are a holy God and you are a God who is light, a God in whom there is no darkness. Father, I pray that we would be a people, your church, that would walk in the light as you are in the light. That we would, we would not pretend any longer and say that we have fellowship with you when the reality is we're walking in darkness. Father, we repent of these things. We desire to walk in your ways. Draw us near. The promise is that you'll draw near to us. Church, I believe it's also appropriate that we turn to God. Not only that we confess our sins. and Perhaps there's some additional confessing of sins that need to happen one to another here in the body, and, and that can happen. That can happen. Even yet today, that can happen if that's needed. But in addition to confession of sins and repenting, there's a turning to God. The Bible uses these words of fleeing, youthful lusts, and then pursuing. Pursuing, turning to God. Pursuing His desires for your life. Just ask that God would teach us and strengthen us to do works befitting a repentant heart. Psalm 119, verse 2 says, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. Psalm 119, verses 9 and 10. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart, I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Psalm 119, verse 35. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. I pray that would be so true for our church. There would be a delight to walk in this word. Psalm 119, verse 162. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great treasure. In Psalm 119, verse 173, let your hand be my help, for I have chosen your precepts. And while it's true that the psalmist has chosen God's precepts, it's also true that if we are in Christ, he has chosen us. 
We are his ambassadors now. The old has gone, the new has come. Lord, let your hand become our help. May we turn to you and walk with you. May we read these words here in Mark chapter 4. Pray they would drive us away from these cares and riches and desires that take us a different direction, that choke the word of God out in our lives, that cause us to become unfruitful. I pray that we be diligent, as Second Peter chapter 1 says, to add to our faith. We would add these virtues. Father, we see that when we fail to remember these things, when we fail to remember you've called us to Be connected one to another, to grow together, to walk together. You put warnings before us in your word. You've shown us in the scripture that the time is short. Father, I pray that we would not get caught and snared on these things that are spoken of here in Mark chapter 4. But it would be our heart's desire. And Lord, we would ask and cry out to you that it would be our heart's desire. I pray it's our heart's desire as a church to hear your word, to accept this word, to bear fruit for you. Father, the work that you need to do in our lives, the work that needs done in our heart, I pray, Father, you would do that necessary work. That you would continue to do that necessary work yet today. I pray that families would be diligent to seek you in this. May we be drawn to you in your ways. I pray that we would look unto Jesus for all things not rest on our own doing, our own strength. But like those fishermen in the boat in Luke chapter 5, when they pull their boats up to shore, we see that Jesus was worth it all. I pray that our lives would reflect two feet in, follower of Jesus Christ. Pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who laid down his life for us. Pray in his name. Amen.